Good morning, my name is Philip, and I will be bringing you the second Bible reading, which is taken from Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 to 31. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been travelling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. In the morning watch, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud, and cloud at the Egyptians' army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. Amen. And may God add his blessing to his word. Thank you, Philip. Oh, let's join in and pray once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this word, what we do not see, help us see. What we do not hear, help us hear. What we do not want to do, help us do. And where we lack, lack faith, give us faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come to the very climax of the story of Exodus. It's all been leading up to this point. The actual Exodus the actual Red Sea, the famous Red Sea crossing. It's a story that has inspired hope and freedom. 
And so you read history and you see that's inspired liberation movements and revolutions and anti-slavery campaigns and civil rights movements. You know, let my people go. And that is all well and good. But today I want us to read this story not merely as a story for inspiration and not merely as a story in history and not even merely as a story for children. I want us to read this story as what we all need as part of our experience. You see, unless we too experience a Red Sea crossing, then we have yet to taste and see the goodness of God. We have yet to cross over from slavery to freedom, from death to life. You see, I want us to hear this this morning because I suspect some of us sitting here won't realize that we need a Red Sea crossing. Because as we reflect on our own lives, it might seem to be going well, there's nothing to complain about, always okay. But some of us sitting here will know full well we need such a crossing. Because in life we feel trapped or cornered or we're just stuck or we're feeling lonely or isolated or like an outsider or just walking life aimlessly. You see, we all need this. It's not a distant story, but it's a story we need as part of our own experience. And so let's turn to this story. It's the famous story, the climax. So where are we, are we now? Well, Pharaoh has just lost his firstborn son, and he's finally said to the people, you go, you can go. And so the Israelites have taken off, they've plundered the Egyptians, and at this point, they're camping by the sea. Pharaoh, he finds out. They're camping. Looks like they're hemmed in by the desert. And so he changed his mind. Look at verse 5. He changed his mind. He said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go, and we have lost their services. I mean, it's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Lost their services. It's not as though he could go somewhere else and hire some more workers, some more, would you be my slaves? Well, not at all. You see, Pharaoh still had his same heart problem. In fact, he was pitting himself against God because he's still saying to God, they're mine, my slaves, they're my servants, they're to worship me, not you. And so what does Pharaoh do? Well, now he goes all out. You know, all the chips are in. He sends 600 chariots and soldiers and horsemen and troops. And we need to think, in the ancient world, this was a superpower, the army of the superpower. That would have been a frightening sight to see that marching army with chariots coming towards you. In fact, in the ancient world, chariots were a bit like, think, the tanks of the ancient world. It was to be reckoned with. And so where does this leave the people of God? Well, they find themselves at a dead end. It's not like the fork in the road. You know that experience? You come to a fork in the road, you still have choices. I can go this way or that way. I can go right or left. It wasn't one of those experiences. It was a dead end. No way out. That side, you've got the sea, which meant death. That side, the marching army, that also meant death. And so just imagine, you know, that, that sense of being chased into an alleyway and then a guy comes with an axe it's being cornered you're 
back against the wall. And so you put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites at this moment. Just when you thought things were getting better, you've just escaped. You've experienced freedom now. But your back is against the wall. It's a dead end. What do you do at this point? It's that moment in life, isn't it, where you have no more choices. There's nothing I can do. No way out. It's not merely being between a heart and a rock place. You heard that description before? I feel like being a heart and rock place. It's worse than that. It's not even the do or die moment. It's in fact die or die, a dead end. Now I wonder whether you can resonate with that experience, whether you've ever experienced such a time, a dead end. You know, not finding yourself in an alleyway with a guy coming after you, but, but perhaps even for some of you now, you feel that way. You know, the, the weight of pressures and stress, and problems, and just life so overwhelming, so, so suffocating. Or perhaps you might know someone else who is experiencing that. I mean, we all come across this, either in our own experience or we know someone. Their life just like at a dead end. This past week, I got news from a fellow pastor. After several years of stressful ministry, He's now taking some stress leave, just can't handle it anymore. That's being stuck. That's a dead end. The week after next, I'll be having lunch with another fellow pastor. Burnt out in ministry, and now he's out of ministry. That's being stuck. And I'm sure you have your own stories as well, and sometimes quite heartbreaking when you hear of it, or hear of someone else sharing what they are going through, or how they just feel stuck. Several months ago, I had lunch with a man who was in the thick of that die-or-die moment. And his story, as he was sharing, was totally desperate, utterly despairing. He, He painted a picture of his life. He was a high achiever. But then he found himself at a dead end, no way out. A terrible accident left him paralyzed. And because of that, Because of that, he was estranged from his wife, from his daughter. Heartache. Ongoing chronic problems. Couldn't see his family. And then foolish financial decisions left him in a mess. Other broken relationships, rejection. He tried to run away and run away, but couldn't fix his problem. No running away from it. He was at a dead end. It wasn't the life he planned. It was that die-or-die moment. And I wonder whether some of us have experienced that or resonate with the feeling of of the Israelites at this moment. But, But now in this story, notice how they found themselves in such a situation. Do you notice how they got there, camping by the sea? It was actually at no fault of their own. You know, often we find ourselves in a pickle because we've made foolish choices, we've been sinful, it's our fault. But here they were at a dead end by God's making. Do do you notice that? It was God who led them there by the pillar of cloud and fire. It, It was God who led them there to camp by the sea. Now, why would God do such a thing? Did God not know? But you see, what was in fact happening from God's perspective 
was that it wasn't the Israelites who were at a dead end, but it was the Egyptians, in fact, because God was luring them out, baiting them. Look at verse 4. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. You see, it was God's intention that Pharaoh would not let them go. And then God says, But I'll gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Now again, you hear that language of hardening Pharaoh's heart, and I know many of the growth groups have been having lots of discussion about that. But we need to remember, it was both at the same time, Pharaoh's will and God's will. What God was doing was what Pharaoh was himself doing. But now we're told the purpose of the hardening. Do you see what the purpose was? It was so that God would gain glory. God hardened his heart so that he would gain glory. Now I suspect when we read that, we might have some trouble hearing that. I mean, if I were to say, all I do is so that I would gain glory, what would you call me? You'll call me a narcissistic, selfish, self-centered, egotistic, stuck-up, conceited, I've just ran our synonyms. You call me all those things. But how is it not different with God? You see, the difference is simply, God is God and we're not. You see, when God brings glory to himself, he's not grasping at something that is not him. He's in fact displaying who he really is. And it is for our good to know him as he really is. It is for our good that we should know him in his glory and majesty and power it is good for us but you see but when we try to gain glory for ourselves we're actually grasping at something that does not ultimately belong to us i mean you think about your life and your talents and what you're good at i might be a great mathematician or musician but if i claim the glory is mine then i'll fail to recognize the god who gave me the mind, the talents, and my life. It's very interesting. I don't know if you find this interesting. I always find it fascinating to hear how people give their acceptance speeches. Oscars, winning elections, MVP awards. The best speeches are the ones that are most humble. And the ones that are most humble are the ones that acknowledges God. Steph Curry, he, he was a... He's a basketballer, famous basketballer. When he was awarded the MVP in 2016, he said, I want to thank God, obviously for the health, and that's true. He has the health because of God, for the talents God has given him. That's a good speech. And so the Israelites at this point, God is bringing glory to himself, and he will. But at this point, they're at a dead end, and they are there by God's purpose And so why? Why else? Well, it was so that they also might be tested. Because how did the Israelites respond at this point? I mean, surely after the plagues, after the boils and and the locusts and the frogs, they would have said, I believe in God now. But how did they respond when they found themselves in that situation? Look at verse 11. They said, was it because... There were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
I mean, do you hear what they said? Really? You said all that while you were in Egypt? Well, they didn't say that at all. They've been crying out to God for hundreds of years. They've been tortured and brutalized as slaves. So why the quick change? What was happening? Well, we learn and see something of their heart. It shows how short-lived their thanksgiving of God was. I mean, when they were spared the hail and the darkness and they were still able to hold on to their firstborn son, you know, praise the Lord. He's alive. But now they find themselves in this situation and in their delusion, they said, I'd rather be back in Egypt. And I wonder whether, perhaps, that might be some of our experience in life. It was a good day yesterday. Praise the Lord. He's been good to me. Good health. Everything's going well. But today, it's a bad day. It's all your fault, God. How short-lived our thanksgiving to God is. But what we also see here shows how fickle their faith was. I mean, surely if they've just seen the ten plagues, surely they might cry out, maybe send another plague. Moses, let's do something else. But how fickle their faith was. But what it also shows was a deeper problem. In fact, a deeper slavery. They were still enslaved. You see, their slavery was not just political or social or economical or cultural. It was spiritual. You see, they've been freed already, physically freed. They've left Egypt, but they were still spiritually enslaved. You see, you can take them out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of them. They were still enslaved by what they saw, their circumstances, their fears, how they felt. And in one sense, they were still enslaved to Pharaoh. They'd rather go back to serve Pharaoh instead of God who has freed them. Crazy. You see, their hearts were still in captivity to sin. And they were unable to wholeheartedly trust God yet. You see, when life comes to that point of being at a dead end, it really should be the beginning of faith. Crying out to God again, help. But here they took the opportunity to whinge, to complain, to be afraid they were still enslaved. And so what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, what can you do when you're stuck? We well, can't do anything. But God can do something. And so look at what Moses says, verse 13. Moses says to them, do not be afraid. Now, I wonder if you were Moses, whether they would be the first words that would come from your mouth. They wouldn't be mine. I would say, you fools. You idiots. You've just seen the ten plagues. Why are you complaining now? But not Moses. He says, do not be afraid. And then he says, stand firm. And you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That is to be silent. Do you see what Moses was saying here? First of all, you need to remember this fight is not against you. This is not your fight. It's in fact the Lord's fight. I mean, if they're fighting against you, you know, it's a piece of cake. You're, you're malnourished, you're skinny, you were weak slaves for so long, of course you lose. But the fight is against God. And who's going to lose there? And again, I think that's important for us Christians today to remember, to keep in mind. 
Because I think if you just look at the state of the church around the world, and especially in our city and our state, the church looks weak, declining in many places, aging in many places, and closing up in many places. Christianity pushed towards the periphery of society, marginalized, stigmatized. In Australia, they say evangelicals only represent 2 to 3%. But the battle is against the Lord. Not against us. I mean, how are we going to win? But Jesus will build his church, we're told. Second, do you notice what Moses commanded? What did Moses say? Well, he didn't say to them, well, now you need to get ready. Put on your armor, sharpen your swords, get ready to fight. I mean, if we were there, perhaps that might be what we would try to do. But, but notice how surprising that command was. What did he say? Stand firm. Be still. Be silent. I mean, that is surprising. Why would you say that? This past week, I visited a man in hospital, and we reflected on this verse. And I said, this verse is a summary of, this, of the gospel, isn't it? It's a summary of salvation. What do you have to do to be saved? It's pretty clear there. What do you do? You do nothing. And so this man, he, he said, well, it's pretty clear there. Just be still and shut up. And I thought, that's a nice paraphrase. But it's true, isn't it? Stop speaking your nonsense. Stop trying to do anything. Be still and watch God's salvation. Be still, stand firm. It's so that you will have absolutely no doubt at all that your salvation depends not on you one bit. You do nothing, you contribute nothing, you add nothing, you bring nothing. Just watch and see what God will do. Now, of course, this is not saying, you know how some people would say, let go and let God. You know, that fatalist idea, that, that idea of inactivity and resignation. No, to, to stand still is active. Being still and standing firm, it, it takes far more faith. It takes faith and courage and boldness and patience to just stand still. It's not easy to stand still when you see the marching army. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, he, he puts it so well, he said, I dare say you will think it a very easy thing to stand still, but it is one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. To stand at ease in the midst of tribulation shows a veteran spirit, long experience, and much grace. It takes faith to just stand still and to watch the army come. But it is a picture of salvation. God does everything, and I do nothing. And so what happened next? While Moses stretched out his hand, verse 21, the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. I mean, that's the crescendo of God's power on display. The splitting of the sea. A wall on the right and a wall on the left, and they just walked right through. It was a miracle from God, a display of God's power. I remember when I was still in high school at our 
religious edu education class. One of the teachers said, well, it couldn't have been a miracle. It was just the tides coming in and out. But not at all. How do you get tides that make a wall of water on the right and left? And so the people of God walked through. The Egyptians, what happened to them? Verse 28, not one of them survived. Now, I wonder whether this has crossed your mind as you read that story. I mean, could God have saved them some other way? I mean, I thought about this. I wonder why God didn't make it a whole lot easier. You know, a bit like in Star Trek, just teleport it from one side of the sea to the other. Why didn't God do that? Far quicker. Well, have you ever wondered any whether there could have been any other way? Well, you see, it had to be that way because, you see, the splitting of the Red Sea was not only an act of judgment on the Egyptians, but it was so that God would teach his people faith. They had to put their faith into practice. If God just teleported them from one side to the other side, they didn't have to exercise faith at all. They're just over the other side. But for them to walk through, that they had to learn faith. You see, after Moses split the sea, it was entirely possible for some to be so taken by fear. I'm not going to walk through that. No way. I'd rather take my chances with the Egyptian army. They could have done that. But in fact, they all went through. You have to understand how terrifying that would have been. But what did it show? What was God teaching them? You have to put your faith into practice. They learned faith. That God will deliver them, that God, the wars of the water will not crush upon them. In fact, Timothy Keller, he, he had this wonderful insight on this story. He said, some walking through the wars of water would have been thinking, this is awesome. Isn't our God great? And the Egyptians, they can eat their hearts out. But some walking through would have been thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Are we going to die? Are we going to drown? But in the end, both were saved just the same. You see, God was teaching them something about faith. You put your faith into practice. It's not how much faith you have. It's not how weak or strong your faith is. It's the object of your faith. Now, you've probably heard people say, I don't have a strong faith like yours, or I wish my faith was as big as yours. It's, it's the wrong way to think about it. What's important is not the strength of my faith, What's important is the strength of the one I put my faith in, the strength of God himself. And so, be silent and just watch and see. And then what happened? Verse 30 comes to this point. This is the summary. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. They've crossed over from slavery to freedom, from death to life. And then in the end, last verse, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That's the famous story of the Exodus. But now let me ask you, what does it have to do with us? You see, the Red Sea crossing experience of Israel is a picture of the Red Sea crossing we all need. Because it's a story of God's deliverance of God's salvation that we all desperately need. Not a story we see and read from a distance, but it's meant to be a personal story. 
Now, some of us sitting here will read this and, and we will feel like our back is against the wall, just like the Israelites. Some of us sitting here may not even know that we are against the wall and that we are at a dead end. But the reality is that all humanity are at a dead end, spiritually speaking. I mean, you may have heard this, you may have reflected upon this, or this may even be you. Have you ever asked, what do I live for? What's your purpose here on earth? I go through the cycles of the day. I go through the routine of the week. I go through the seasons of the year. I study, work, I strive for that next promotion. I strive for that next relationship, for that next adventure, for that next holiday. I, I look forward to that next purchase. Or my life might just feel like it's, it's just survival mode. I'm just moving from one crisis to another. But I'm hoping there's meaning. I'm hoping there's purpose or significance. But what's in fact being revealed is that I'm stuck. I'm enslaved to whatever it is I'm trying to live for, trying to hope that it will give me fulfillment and satisfaction. What I need is to cross the other side. I mean, I've got the sea on one side, I've got the army coming. I need to cross over. You know that man I had lunch with? He, he was injured and his life was a complete mess. But he's just been longing for acceptance. He's felt rejection so often. He's looking for that next relationship. He's looking for the next or the new start to life. He's looking for forgiveness for his mess. He's trying to find significance in life. But he's running around finding it in all the wrong places. And it's just left him falling into self-pity. He's not going to find it unless he crosses over. Running away will not help him find it unless he stops, be silent, be still, and take hold of what God has done. Because what is it that God has done? What is it that this story is a picture of in the gospel story? He said, what was necessary to bring those Israelites from one side experiencing slavery to freedom, to joy, to hope, to peace? What was necessary? But they needed a Moses. They needed a mediator. And we're given a hint in this story that that is also what we need. You see, who was it that was complaining and whinging to God? Who was it? The Israelites. But who copped it from God? Do you notice that? It was subtle. It was subtle. But maybe you've picked it up. Look at verse 15. After all the whinging and complaining, the Lord said to Moses, Why are you? Moses wasn't the one complaining. But why are you? It's you in the singular. Why are you, Moses, crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Now, what was happening there? I mean, scholars were wondering what's going on here. You see, what was happening was Moses so identified with the people, so identified with their whinging and complaining, so identified with their sins, it was as though he did it. He was their mediator. He's the one who stood between God and the people. And so for them to cross over, 
They needed a Moses who identified with them. And for us to cross over, we need such a mediator to take us through the sea. We need someone who would stand in our place, so identify with our problems, our issues, our struggles, our pain, our sins. And someone who would pay for it all. Someone who would lead us to a new start to life. Someone who would take us from death to life. And we have that Moses, that greater Moses. And that is Jesus Christ. It's why at the transfiguration of Jesus, in that story, up on the mountain, you had Elijah and Moses. And what were they talking about? They were talking about the departure of Jesus, or more literally, the exodus of Jesus. Jesus was bringing about a greater exodus, a greater Red Sea crossing from death to life, from death to eternal life. And that greater exodus is through his death and resurrection. Moses brought the people over. We need such a Moses. Jesus is the one who helps us cross over. And so my question to you this morning is, have you yet crossed over from death to life by faith? And you remember, you do nothing. Because you see, for those of us who have already crossed over, we're on the safe side. We're on God's side. We're no longer a slave. The enemy's vanquished. If we are on the other side, then... For those of us who have crossover, we must live like that. Live like we're free. Live like we live for God. Live like we've got nothing to fear. And nothing to fear, even the most frightening thing, death itself. I mean, some of you I know have been diagnosed with cancer. Some of you are in remission and praise the Lord for that. But I want you to reflect, or I want you to imagine if that's not you, how would you respond when you first hear that news? It's cancer. Because those of us who have crossed over to the other side, we will know I've got nothing to lose. I'm on God's side. I'm safe with him. I'm not going back. I'm safe in his arms. And those who know that will show a beautiful faith, which I've seen in our church family, and a beautiful confidence. I've got nothing to lose. Just a bit over a week ago, many of you will know that the famous pastor and author, Timothy Keller, passed away. You know of that story? After three years battling with pancreatic cancer, he died just a bit over a week ago. In fact, when I was preparing this very sermon, um, social media was popping up, and there was an update from his son, Michael Keller. He put on his profile what Timothy said just three nights before he passed away, Timothy Keller said, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. Now, how can you say such words? three days before you, your life on earth ends. Why? Because he knew he had already passed over from death to life. 
In fact, in one of his sermons, he said this. He said, even the worst thing that can happen to me, death, can only make me better. Spare not death. Come on. All you could do is make me better than I am now. And Timothy Keller, one who knew the Lord, who followed the Lord, has already crossed over from death to life. Because of Jesus, his mediator, he's crossed over not just from death to life, but from this life to the next. And he's more alive, more joyful, more peaceful than he could ever possibly be in this life because he's with his Savior. You see, the story of Exodus is personal. Jesus makes it personal. And so let me ask you, have you crossed over yet? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greater Moses, the great mediator, Jesus Christ, who helps us to cross over from slavery to freedom, from being enslaved to being servants of the Most High. Help us, Lord, to have that faith to walk through and to walk through this life, trusting in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.